2017. Three men joined together in a pact to see what they could collectively do to advance civilization, further the cause of world peace, and elevate mankind. These three men were internationally renowned musician and Lincoln Park multi-instrumentalist Dave Phoenix Farrell, multiple PGA Tour champion and world-class golfer Brendan Steele, and Mark. They named themselves the members. Those who they chose to sit with and ponder the mysteries of the universe, they named the guests. What you're about to listen to is one of those historic conversations. Welcome to the Member Guest Podcast. Welcome to Member Guest. And here we are in our LA operations. This is the Member Guest Podcast. Friends and family listening, welcome. With me, as always, is my man to my right, Mr. Brendan Steele. Steely on the wheels of steel, the ones and twos. <laughs> thought you were going to say on the drums tonight or something. You can be on the drums. Sure. With me on my left, as always, is Mark Fiore, Marcus Aurelius Fiorius Maximus. What's up, Dave? You do have Latin descent, so Italian slash Latin name kind of works for you. Marcus Aurelius Fiorius. This would be a good time to add in the 23andMe sponsorship, you know? <laughs> if you want to know your own... Mark, actually, if you did want to know what you were exactly, 23andMe is a great... Sorry, I'm not, I'm not a paid Have sponsor. you done it? I've done it recently. All of our ads that we do on this are completely on spec. <laughs> Hey, uh, so 23andMe, if you're interested. <laughs> Have you heard that they started catching criminals based off of 23andMe and those types of things? And it doesn't actually have to be the criminal that does the 23andMe. It's like anybody in his family does it. That's how they caught the Golden State Killer. Right. They like traced it through his cousin or somebody did it. And they were like, oh, now we have this DNA. Well, it's not actually this guy that committed the crimes, but it's somebody in his family. And now we can work through this, that, and the other thing. So now, if you're going to commit a crime, you got to worry about who in your family is doing 23andMe, or else you're totally screwed. Plug to 23andMe. <laughs> I should. think you just lost the sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> they were in for a second, and then they're out. Oh, man. Mark, edit that. <laughs> Our guest today... You've already heard his sotto voce, his smooth voice sticking to our Latin roots that we have started the podcast with. He is known in the fashion world as the blog father. He is a beacon to men's fashion and influencer to influencers. He founded ACL at Continuous Lean in 2007 as a way to celebrate the well-made and often underappreciated companies with an affinity for things made in the USA. He is a contributor to GQ, the co-creator of the pop-up flea, flea market, a car enthusiast, a watch guru. He is the Williams in Paul and Williams marketing and PR firm with notable clients such as Patagonia, Levi's Vintage Red Wing Shoes, Fair Value. Fair Trade. That was, dude, that was my own stinking computer just interrupting me with my, with the dings. Fair <laughs> Trade and Drake's. Born in Cleveland with deep roots in New York and now a Los Angeles Angelino. Ladies and gentlemen, golf's Mugatu, Michael the Blog Father Williams. Thanks for having me. Thanks for Welcome. bringing Woo-hoo. me to the pod. Woo-hoo. Excited to be here. Season two. Season two, in effect. Yeah, so Michael, welcome. We're stoked you were here. You were originally on our slated list for season one. 
somehow in the mix of all that, we ended up just having a golf day instead of a podcast, which, which was okay, which might have been a win for us. We're here now. Um, and so, yeah, tell us what was your process? What was your journey from Ohio to New York to California? And then, you know, back 10 plus years ago with where you got started out in the blogosphere. So everyone knows someone from Ohio, it seems like. Ohio is a great place, but it's even better place to sort of move on from. Right. <laughs> Live somewhere else. Great place um, to be from. Yeah, it's a good place to be from. Great place to grow up. I went to college in Ohio, went to OU. Basically, like, never declared my major was sort of like not paying any attention to what was happening. And then one day I sort of decided, oh, I'm going to do communications. I went down to the office and they were like, yeah, there's like a two-year waiting list or something. And so I was like, oh, shit, like, what am I going to do? I looked through the course book and decided what majors lined up with what I've taken so far best. And it was retail merchandising. And I was like, ah, like clothes, like, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. I just like the idea of the clothing industry. I was always kind of into clothes. You get to deal with media. I like didn't have the pedigree to get a real job. You know, I didn't study ever. I was, like, I didn't know, learn I was kind of yeah. Anything I didn't That's... learn. I mostly partied. <laughs> so I just ended up like working for a showroom and then worked for a PR firm. I always thought like, oh, I could just figure stuff out. So I should just get my own clients. I'd been going to Japan a lot because I was working for this Japanese company and. I was reading all their magazines and they would have like magazines that were so specific about like the most, you know, like tiny fraction of a like industry. And it would be like the deepest dive into like the narrowest subject. And I was like, these guys are nuts. Like, are you, spe- but- are you specifically talking about like bass player magazines? <laughs> <laughs> Basses, Mr. Baseman. It would yeah. always be like something crazy. Thank you. Yeah. That is that's my name magazine. in Japan. Yeah. That's, it was that's, all Dave Farrell. That's my... Just who, a magazine, weekly magazine, all Dave, all the time. The <laughs> best, that's the best kind. Where did the blog go from there? You know, I really like traditions and things that have lasted for a long time and heritage brands and that sort of thing. I started thinking about the blog as a way that I could meet brands and we could sort of, you know, just get a little bit of exposure. But that was like a kernel of the idea. And then the other part of the idea was like, I had no idea what I was doing. So I decided like, if I'm going to do this, like I have to do it every day. And people were really seeking out a lot of information. And I was like working full time, making no money, like not even able to pay my rent. It was a real struggle. And this was like a great outlet for me. And in 2009, like the trends were very much going where I was at, which was about heritage brands and workwear and things made in the U.S. It was before social media. And so the reason that that is interesting is because now when you wake up, you probably look at your phone and open Instagram and Twitter and maybe check your email. And then you get up and you go. Before that, people would wake up and go to their six bookmarks on their browser and look right. at the, read their blogs, and, and they would do it every day. But I wrote the site very seriously almost every day for over five years. And it's like going out and finding stories, taking pictures, writing everything. It was fun, and I, I never thought of myself as a writer, and it sort of brought that out of me. I didn't depend on it to live or make money, and so that's why I think it worked. I wasn't covering a brand because I wanted them to like send me free stuff or give me something or pay me. I just liked it, you know? And so I would always find these weird companies that 
kind of like no one knew about, write about them. And a couple of times, like it ended up being like a company was going to go out of business and I wrote about them and then they got a buyer and then that story will like end up in the Wall Street Journal and the company got saved. And it was pretty cool. Like stuff like that would happen mm. and I would be like really stoked to, you know, like just help these little companies. And you know, so I remember the, the first time I met you, I met I met Michael through Derek when he was doing a brand called Riviera mm-hmm. and I went out to New York for Fashion Week. He's like, oh, you got to meet this guy, Michael Williams. He's like, he's a fashion blogger and he knows everybody. I think I had this idea in my head that because you were like an influencer in fashion that you were going to be this person. We literally went to like a bar in in New York and just like watched Monday Night Football and drank like (laughs) Miller Lights or something. And I was like, this guy's telling everybody what's cool in fashion. But no, I think it it was a different era in fashion. (laughs) People, I would always say when I would meet people like I'd meet the biggest fan of my blog and like, it, you know, all these people were just so kind and like over the years there's been like so m- I've had to deal with a lot of negativity, but like a lot of the readers are just so great and I would meet them and they'd be like excited to meet me just because they like connected with the site and read it for a long time. And then I would meet them and they would be so disappointed <laughs> and they see me because I'm like not, you know, I'm just like, I'm into that. And I would express a lot of that stuff like through my writing or through the blog, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be necessarily like living it a hundred percent, you know? So I would I think, always be like, I'm sorry to disappoint I, you. <laughs> I think that's in some ways, I think that's probably pretty common and not just in your particular world, but from my experience, the people who are really into stuff are into it in like a natural and kind of like a holistic, healthy way, whether it's like golf or whether it's like fashion or whether it's like Mm -hmm. music, that invariably when somebody meets me, there's a part of them in their head that thinks like, dude, this guy's got to be like all day, every day music or even worse, all day, every day bass. Like if you come in and you (laughs) meet me and that's like your impression going into it is I'm going to ask this guy about bass tones. Holy shit, fasten your disappointment seatbelt because I'm going to not have anything for you. And it's like the last thing you want to talk about. Or if you show up at a PGA tour event and you're just like, oh, this is my chance to meet Brendan or whomever. And the first thing I'm going to ask them is like, hey, man, like, you got any like secrets on how to open up my 60 degree and hit like a better flop shot? Like, how do I get it to really check and spin, like, from short-sided on a green? Does that you just really be like, happen? Oh, yeah, that happens. Or even worse, the, like... I, well, that only happens because I always ask him that. <laughs> yeah, Dave. Only Dave asks that. But even even Actually, worse... I would like to know how to check and... <laughs> even worse for me is always when they ask the questions that have no actual answer. You know, it's like, well, how do I get on the PGA Tour? Like, what do I need to do? Enter, tournament, enter tournaments like, and shoot really good scores. <laughs> but, I mean, everybody's game like really is good. so different. These people that I'm meeting, I don't know how good they are, how their mental game is. It's, it ends up being all these different things that you can't even quantify, right? It's like, well, you're super uncomfortable and you need to make par on the last hole and the wind's going in and off the left and you hit it out of bounds on this hole yesterday. Like, what do you do? And they're like, huh? Like, what do you mean? It's like, well, do you have a shot that you know will just be in play? It might be ugly and like stupid and nobody would ever teach you how to hit this shot, but you know, for you, it's going to do this. And they're like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, well, you got to learn that stuff. It's not like go sit on the range and hit, hit 507 irons every day. It's like, no, that's stupid. Like, don't do that. And it becomes like shot selection and reading lies. And But it's like, it's so complex, right? It's so complex. There's, there's no there's, answer yeah. when somebody asks me that. People have asked me, like, how do I start a successful blog? 
I'm like, uh, fuck, I don't know. Be interesting, get lucky, like do it every day. Hope, you know, like people pump you up. I have no idea. Like it's, there's no straight line to this stuff. It's like, well, here's what I did over the course of a very long time. When you were a child, did you think like, I want to be on the PGA tour? Like, was it your goal in life? No. Like when did it, when did it, were you like 18 when you're like, oh, maybe like I could give this a go and at, so I didn't start playing golf till I was 13. So I started late for late for tour players anyway. I mean, I was playing baseball and soccer mm-hmm. and originally like my dad wanted me to play in the premier league and I wanted to play major league baseball. Right. And then at some point it shifted into golf around 13. And my dad's like, we live in a town with no golf course. How are we going to do this? Right. So put up a net in the backyard and an artificial putting green. And I just wanted to make the high school team. Mm-hmm. And then at each level, it was like, I don't know if I'm good enough. You know, I don't know if I'm good enough to play in college. And then I played in college and I did, did well and I didn't want to get a job. So then I played mini tours and then Canadian tour and, you know, and you just keep going. So I just didn't want to stop while I felt like I was getting better and I was still enjoying it. Because everybody would ask me like, so when are you going to stop? When are you going to get a job? Yeah. Like, when I stop enjoying it and I don't feel like I'm getting better, I'll look at something else. But as long as I'm still doing those two things, I assume it's similar with the blog too. Like if you feel like you're improving and more people are liking it, you're enjoying it. You're just going to keep going and keep getting better and keep moving forward. But as, as soon as it becomes like, I don't like it anymore. Yeah. It's not getting better. People aren't interested in it. Maybe I should do something else. Yeah. But there's no clear path. Going back to the the guy or I guess girl who meets you, who's disappointed in that experience. I'm just picturing you having like this, this go-to like crazy fold outable hat, like, or something in your back pocket that you can pull out. That's just this, it folds out and then you put it on. It's this massive, like attention getting fashion hat. <laughs> and then you're just like, what do you got oh, on that? I'm sorry. Was this not going how you wanted it to go? Like, how about now? Like, behold my fashion hat. Like, is this what you were looking for? You just totally redeemed yourself. Like, okay, this is. I, I don't way think better. any of these people were really like into fashion in the traditional sense of fashion, right? Like, I would always totally. say it's like yeah. not not fashion with a capital F, but you know, I think like they were just not fashion. I think I was F O S H fashion. Exactly. Not derelict enough, you know. <laughs> Not blue steel enough. No reference to you, Brendan. That's a good one. We can use that one moving forward. <laughs> I can derelict my own balls. <laughs> yeah, so I was like better at maybe like finding some of these little stories and expressing what I thought was interesting about them. And I was never like, this is the everything you need to know about this brand or whatever. I was always sort of taking the approach of, I think this is interesting. This is why I think it's interesting. This is why I think you should look into it a little bit more. And like, if you're into it, maybe like a deeper dive would be cool. And everyone at home was kind of like taking the super deep dive and I was like moving on or whatever. So it's interesting what you mentioned though. Like I, I was reading LeBron never played basketball until he was nine. Obviously he's got like a lot of like natural talent. So he played for like four years before he went to the NBA? Yeah, it's you know, and you started playing golf late. I'm drawing a line between you and LeBron. Do you like this? Thank you. <laughs> I'll um, take it. <laughs> Tell me more. 
thinking about like becoming really good at a sport or, you know, like getting your kids to play a sport, maybe it's better to like, let them do other stuff and just have fun. And like, it seems like having fun is more important than, I don't know. There's no answer to this question. I'm just I, throwing that out there. I think there is an answer to this question. I mean, everybody tells me like, Oh, I want my kid to play on the PGA tour and they're six. What should I do? Should I have him go to the range and do this and do that? And I need to get him a coach. And I'm like, no, like let him do everything that he thinks is fun. If he thinks it's fun to go throw a rock off your house, like let him go do that. Yeah. You know? And then when he wants to play golf, he'll play golf. I had plenty of friends or people that I knew in junior golf and high school and stuff like that, that their parents made them play and they were good, but they didn't like it. So they were never going to stick with it. As soon as they got to college, they were like, I like beer and girls way more than I like having my dad yell at me about hitting seven irons. Like, that's just not fun. I mean, even one of my coaches, Chris Mason's got this girl and she's amazing and she's young. She asked him, she's like 12 years old or something. He's like, this girl's incredible. And she, she was asking me like, well, you know, how often should I practice and this and that? And he's like, well, you know, how often do you want to practice? And she's like, uh, I don't know. You know, he's like, well, if you want to practice every day, practice every day. If you want to practice once a week, practice once a week. He's like, but. You, you like it, right? Do you like it? And her mom's like sitting, you know, a little further away. And she's like, I hate it. <laughs> and he's like, what? Really? She's like, I hate it. I can't stand it. She makes me do it, you know? And it's like, well, she's never going to be any good. Regardless of how good she actually is, she's never going to stick with it. Because as soon as she's out of the parental sphere of influence, she's going to go, ah, I've been forced to do this my whole life. I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. So you just let your kid do whatever they want to do. You let them play every sport. They, and we've gone to this like very specific single sport focus, I think, from a young age because everybody wants their kid to be LeBron. And it's like, just let them do whatever they want to do. And if it works out, it works out. But I don't think it necessarily helps to just be like, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to get you the best coach, put you at the best course, and you have no reason why you can't succeed. That's like the U.S. government approach to things. It's like throw a bunch of money at it and, you know, like hope. Just throw money at it. Actually, incidentally, that's my approach as well. <laughs> that's how I fix stuff at Ironically. <laughs> yeah, throw some money at it. The, I think from a, like a parenting standpoint, you will have some of those kids who are pushed by parents or whatever definitely succeed to a certain point, even even on tour or in, you know, I've, I've seen that even in music. As I zoom out of it, the reality maybe of what's going on there is is the parent just is wanting something that they think would be great. Usually more it's more about them than it is the child. And in reality, I think any parent at some core of it just wants joy or happiness to be in their child's life. Like you almost want them to have a better life than you've had. You want them to be fulfilled. You want them to have a great existence of sorts. And you're almost... A lot of those parents are projecting like, I know this would be great for me, but they're putting that on the child. Where that obviously backfires is if that kid, even if he does succeed and gets on tour, but always hates golf and you're now he's really successful at golf, but there's no joy in it for him and he actually like hates it. That initial drive or goal or whatever that's coming from that parent is almost like it's cut off, you know, at, at the knee from the jump because the real desired outcome is like a fulfillment or like a a great life for your kid. I think the real wisdom there might be you can push kids and you want to do that because sometimes they won't have that drive themselves and then they'll learn it. 
but at the end of it all or behind it all, they've got to also really have a love or enjoyment for what they're doing, you know? And if they don't, then it doesn't make any sense for it to be your thing that you're just pushing them into. Speaking of kids, Michael, you had a little girl in October. How are you embracing fatherhood? Uh, I, how many, how many seven irons is she hitting a day? (laughs) (laughs) A thousand. (laughs) Not enough. Before (laughs) breakfast. That's just our morning routine. Don't worry. There's more beyond that. We work on short game all afternoon. (laughs) Um, yeah, I feel like this was like the mission that I was like needed for most or designed for. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, I was pretty nervous about it, just like the unknown. And I'd sort of said that, um, earlier, but you know, I was, I was always kind of nervous about like what was going to happen and I didn't have control of the situation and then, you know, meeting my daughter and it's, it's so much fun. And my approach has been like be as capable as of a dad as possible. So be able to like do anything, take her on my own, you know, like I call it the Mark Fiore technique, you know, just be like super capable. <laughs> no, I think like, you know, as a dad, like you kind of get dinged for, you know, I hear a lot of stories. It's like, he never changed the diaper. He couldn't do this. It's like, why can't you do it? It's not hard. There's certain things like mom is always going to be better at with like a small child than the dad. But, you know, I think it's super fun to, you know, just be able to like spend time with her on my own or go do stuff. And I'm like really loving it. How are you liking it? Brandon? Uh, I'm, I'm loving it as well. It's been, uh, it's been a ton of fun, especially the last maybe like four months. She's been way more like happy in like a schedule and interactive. And, uh, it's great. Like it's, it's hard to describe. I know everybody says that like, Oh, you won't, you won't know what it's like until you're into it, but it's, it's been great. And I've been having them on the road with me, which makes me a lot more comfortable. I find that I'm like, when I'm traveling without them, I'm a lot more anxious. And I, I suppose there's some sort of like innate protection response. Not, not even necessarily that I'm going to need to like fight people off, you know, from my wife and daughter, but just that you're supposed to be around and supposed to be there. So I find that when I'm out on the road traveling by myself, I'm always in a rush to get home and feeling uneasy until I get there. And then when they come out with me, I just feel a lot more calm and like, that's great. But it's really nice to be able to go home. And like, I played really bad a couple of weeks ago on one of the rounds. And when I got home, I was just like, where's my baby? Give me my baby. (laughs) Get over here, baby. Your services are needed. (laughs) Make me feel good. Yeah. Make me feel better. Yeah. That that could be taken so many different ways (laughs) like without context, like the go home, like the best of which is obviously the way in which you mean it. The worst of which is like the, I'm going to go home and kick the dog. Like like, where's that baby? (laughs) I'm so upset right now. I'm so upset right now. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to, tickle her chin right now and this is going to make me happy. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't make me like forget about the bad round that I had. You know, I hear a lot of people be like, Oh, it'll totally change your perspective and you won't care about bad shots anymore. And it's like, nah, that's not true. I still care about bad shots, but it makes me get over things easier when I go home and like, it makes me so much happier, you know? So like we, we were joking about it the other day I was out playing, um, had a group, Phil Mickelson, Luke List and John Mallinger. We were talking about how it changes your perspective and everything, but people told you like, oh, bad shots won't matter and this and that. And inevitably, of course, like right after that conversation, I hit this awful shot and Luke or Mallinger was like, oh, that's okay. You have a kid. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) I have a daughter at home. I have a daughter at home. I don't care that I just hit it 
50 yards offline. You, 50 yards offline for me actually is pretty straight. I'd be like, oh, it's pretty straight. Yeah, Only 50 bad. yards offline. Made good contact. Yeah. <laughs> it's solid. Didn't, didn't curve at all. It stayed straight the whole time. It just happened to be 50 yards left of target. You, you were talking about uh, almost like doing doing dad stuff. I think, I mean, I've got three daughters and they're all pretty close in age and they're a little older now, but what, back when it was like they were six months old, almost three and like four. So like all pretty young. Lindsay, when she would maybe go out of town on a girl's trip or something like that, then it was like, all right. You with all three? It's yeah. It's, it's like the Dave show when it would be like one in a stroller and two of them kind of just barely walking and just like absolute chaos. And I'm, I'm the style too, where it's like, if it's just me, then I need to do activities with them. I like, I need to figure out stuff to be doing just to almost like, get myself through the day yeah yeah. like forget about them like i need to figure out what i need to do to get this day like yeah accomplished or behind me so i always loved having them out because that just made it like you have an activity but we'd be at you start doing things like we're gonna go to target today yeah (laughs) we don't need anything from there but we're just gonna walk target Target. that's gonna be an outing like we're looking for outings (laughs) that ought to kill a couple hours (laughs) even if it just kills 20 minutes that's 20 minutes less that we're just doing nothing at home but it was so funny because it was an initial phenomenon that i found when i had a rottweiler puppy i always would tell i'd always tell Lindsay if i was ever like single or if I was ever to do it again and I wanted to just like meet people really, really easily, I would just have this like Rottweiler puppy. And then I, then my brain went to like, what an easy business that would be where you could just rent those out to guys. Like, Hey, just go sit at this park with this Rottweiler puppy. Like it'd be so easy for you to start conversations with, with people, women, whatever. Cause it's like, you're suddenly so approachable. I was like, it's basically that, but times a hundred million. If you have three daughters with you, and it doesn't matter if you have tattoos, if you have piercings, if you have whatever, everybody's immediately like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Like, <laughs> can I help you in any way at this, at this thing? Like men, women, whatever. It's like an immediate signal that like you're approachable. They want to commiserate with you. They want to tell you, oh yeah, I've got three daughters too. Like just get through this. It'll get better. Like just wait a couple of years. Any, just like, wait till they're yeah. 17, 14 and 12. Yeah. And, and I, set. I, the, the thing about it that was always so funny to me was in a three hour period, I would have four to five, six of these types of conversations with just complete random strangers. Whereas prior to that entire lifetime would be zero. <laughs> this has happened zero times where this person has like approached me and wanted to talk to me just randomly at Albertsons. Oh, yeah, Super funny. It's almost like when you get married too, it's like, you know, if you're wearing a wedding ring, other women just look at you and be like, some woman would like has vouched for you. Yeah. Yeah. So you're like, you're okay. You know, like it definitely elevates your status yeah, you from like have single something guys. going for you. Yeah, exactly. He might, he might not be that bad. You know? <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what's going on at your house right now with the, uh, the rodent you've waged war <laughs> on because a few of us here at this table probably have similar stories. I was excited. I thought I had like a real, like I had a real like vermin situation, like a raccoon or something. Take us back because you grew up in Cleveland. I grew up in Cleveland, kind of grew up in this like blue collar working class town, uh, 15 miles east of Cleveland. Our house like backed into like this big, like wooded, maybe like 
100 acres of or 250 acres of woods my parents would just let us like my neighbor friends and i like we would just go just into the woods like every day and like be chopping down trees and like setting shit on fire and like seriously like just vandalizing things and just going insane um and they like had no oversight i was like my parents didn't pay very much attention to us um they would like ring the bell at seven o'clock or whatever and we'd like come home for dinner and that was it it stopped creating forest fires and come home for dinner but don't you think that's more like of our age though too yeah that it that was the way that we grew up i mean i was out climbing trees and jumping off rocks and doing whatever it was not like Oh, somebody has to be watching you 24-7 when you're eight years old. Like, you're just out and doing whatever and be home when your mom yells at you. Yeah, and it was fine. Yeah, and everything was fine, you know? My kids are still out flooding forest fires. Is that something I shouldn't be allowing them to do? (laughs) I think that's They're probably doing that right now. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's great. While we do this. Yeah. We had, so I used to have this house up in Lake Arrowhead, which is like probably similar to the canyons here in L.A., especially during fire season, they're super, super concerned about any fires up there because if it goes up, it just rips through that whole area. And I got, I made the good decision of getting a wood fired jacuzzi. So this was a jacuzzi. Oh my God. So this was a jacuzzi that had. I'm part of the story. A steel <laughs> contraption that sits in the water, but the, the level of the steel like oven almost is higher than the water level. So you're building a wood fire fire in the meantime, the water that's coming in contact with the metal part that's holding the fire is heated by it. So it's a purely wood-fired. Could you burn yourself head. like if you touch that metal thing? In the water, no. Out of the water, yes, definitely. Okay. But in the water, it would stay similar to the water temperature, like when you're feeling it. So Mark helps me build it. Seems dangerous. Yeah. First of all, like a great idea. <laughs> the instructions say something to the effect of like this will take two people four hours to build. Yeah. Very incorrect. This took 10 people 12 hours to build. And it was during our wood anniversary of wedding anniversaries. I'd gotten this for my wife as a wood anniversary (laughs) present, right? Because we always did these creative anniversary presents. So I've got a guy's trip, all these dudes up here just to have fun, but also with the intention. I'm like, you know, one of the days, hey guys, like we'll go hang out. One of the days, PS, we're going to build this thing. It'll be so fun. And everyone's like, okay, cool, we'll do that. And I'm like, we'll do it. We'll start at 10. We'll be done by noon. Like, if it takes two guys four hours, it'll take 10 of us two hours tops. (laughs) We're we're still building it at, like, 6 p.m. It's a disaster to construct it. We get it constructed. It takes maybe six hours to heat up the water. It takes six hours for us us to even get it to 90 degrees. And then then only two of the 10 of us can get in at once. And And two have to keep the fire going. (laughs) Maybe the second time I try to fire it up, it's like winter. I'm like, okay, I know it's going to take a long time to heat up, so I'm going to start at like 9 in the morning. Come 5 o'clock at night, this thing's going to be hot and ready to rock. So I'm building a fire in it, and it's obviously super super smoky and it's, sometimes it's hard to keep it lit enough oxygen in it and i'm not good at fires in the first place so it's just billowing billowing smoke like crazy like i can't even breathe out there i can't see anything it's the entire backyard of our area is filled up and i look up and on the porch there's like five or six firemen all dressed in their helmets and in their full gear and they're just standing up there looking and they're looking down they're like oh, okay so it's not like a real fire <laughs> and i'm like no it's just a <laughs> Wood-fired jacuzzi. Like, oh, we've okay, great. 
Like we've gotten a ton of calls from the neighborhood that there's a major fire going on somewhere around here. Wait, and, and your you front in- door was open and there's no one in. So we wanted to see if we could get to this area of where we were seeing all this smoke. And I'm like, no, just it's just sorry, guys. It's a wood fire jacuzzi. And then takes a long time to heat up. Yeah, I've just been working back here like four hours trying to build a forest fire big enough to get this water heated. Being firefighters, they're like, that's a wood fire jacuzzi. No way. That's awesome. Can we come down and see that? And I'm like, absolutely, guys. Come check this out. You should have been like, any tips for getting this fire? Yeah. How can I make it hotter and crazier? Then the next time or maybe two times after that that I tried it again before I almost completely just gave up on this thing, they they showed up again. And it was like the same deal. And at that point, I was like, all right, this is this is ridiculous. I feel bad. First of all, this is way too much work to get a jacuzzi to fire up. Secondly, I can't have like the fire department showing up every, every time, time I want to sit in a jacuzzi. Do you have any good stories from Arrowhead? I feel like all of them are <laughs> negatives. I bet you marketed that wood fire jacuzzi as like a super selling point it, for like yeah. showed them a couple like baller Instagrams that you took of it. That that thing, well, one because we wouldn't be at that house for long periods of time. And it would just sit with a cover on it. And two, because even when we were there, we stopped using it because I got embarrassed the fire firemen showing up every time. It turned it instead it of being a jacuzzi, it eventually just went to like a slime mold science experiment <laughs> back there. Even when you're inside of it, there was really only one zone that was actually like warm enough and comfortable enough. So we would do, you would do like a little sixty second shifts to be who would be closest to the heater. You'd almost have to be touching the metal. So I had this brush, like a soft bristle brush to brush the the wood sides and stuff. This is probably way too much info on a, on a jacuzzi, but <laughs> it got to a point where like Lindsay and I would go sit in it and I feel like I'd, I had brushed it out or cleaned it enough. This was before it was really, really gross, but then your feet would still find some areas that were just almost like slimy, but had some like the equivalent of seaweed growing off the wood in the water that you could feel like brushing just in areas that you couldn't reach with a brush to clean. So it was like a lake. It was it like you're swimming in a lake. There's so many, there's so many issues. It sounded like such an awesome idea. Eventually the hazmat team started showing up <laughs> on the balcony. They do so, seem okay. like, let's get to the, let's get to the, the vermin uh, story. The vermin story. It's really not as interesting as you might think, but, um, I'm a homeowner. I have a ladder, a grill, like all of this homeowner shit. You know, I like sometimes I'll be up on the roof, like power washing and doing (laughs) ridiculous things that I just find so entertaining. Um, One day I was home. My wife was out of town. I was like home alone with the baby. I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard something like out behind our like bedroom windows. And I'm like, didn't sound like big enough to be a mountain lion. And we like live way up in the hills. So I'm like, could be, you know, a coyote jumped the fence or I was listening kind of again more closely when I was like in, in the bedroom and I heard like the screen door to our crawl space, like kind of being jostled or whatever. And then the next morning I went out and looked and I'm like, something's going in the crawl space, obviously. So I call like the company with the humane that does like the humane traps and they come out and it's like, whatever you pay them and they leave a couple traps and. I know if this were Mark, like Mark would have been like, they rent the traps for like $2 at Home Depot. Like all you need to do is like go down and get that. You can build but your I, own I, trap. I, yeah, yeah. Mark's Tell like, I Mark fashion- sent you. Ask I, for Fred. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, Mark would be like, I fashioned some traps out of like some wire that I found on the road and like, and some, <laughs> like whatever. So I like call the people, they come out and whatever. 
they were funny. I called the guy and I was like, hey, I got like a real vermin problem over here. Like, what are we going to do? Are we going to blow him up? Are we going to electrocute him? Like, what's going to happen? Full Bill Murray. <laughs> the guy was like, he didn't, that was like it right how I started the call. So like, I, he was kind of funny though. He was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to blow him up. We're going to put it on YouTube. We're going to make so much money when it goes, vi- <laughs> when it goes viral. He was funny. So he like, they brought some traps out the next night. Like nothing happens. Like the traps like fucked with a little bit. There was like a, a little hole like dug under the fence. I'm like, oh, I'm going to like set up the nest cam and see what's really happening. So I do. And I discover we just have rats. There's rats. Living. This segment of member guests is brought to you by <laughs> Nest. Brought to you by Google. Um, Google, send us a check. We'll un- undelete this free advertisement. <laughs> so I Google it and Nest camera comes up and I'm like, yes, I need a new one of those. No, I want, I don't want to send it UP USPS. I want strictly UPS because that's way better. And that- UPS is the only delivery service that can come and deliver our packages at my house. Dude, we just nailed so many ads right there. Brought to you by Amazon. <laughs> I ordered a Nest through Google delivered by UPS on my Amazon Echo. Right from my bedroom. It was amazing. Then you did that? Really? No, I didn't. That's bullshit. I was just doing that for the sponsors. <laughs> Sponsored content. No, so we so I figured out we have rats. So I like went and bought the cheap, like old school Victor wooden Yeah, Victor the wood trap. Classic, five it's, bucks. It's dangerous every time you set it, but and, it's oh, yeah, I'm so really what did you use as bait? Peanut butter. Yeah. Avocado. That's, that's what you use. Freaking avocado. Rookies. Oh yeah. Really? Avocado. Avocado is too expensive. That's like the Californians. Yeah, that is you know? that is the most California thing Dude. you've ever said. <laughs> I use diamond earrings. <laughs> Rats Everybody love knows. those. Everybody knows they eat the diamond earring and die right away. They want to take them back to their nest. They like pretty sparkly things. <laughs> I, I'm envisioning somebody like listening to this in Lithuania and going like avocado. Are you kidding avocado. me? Dude. But I'm yeah, getting a rat every jam. night. Every night I'm getting one. Anyway, that's what's happening. It's funny to set those traps though, because you, I am very nervous, oh. like just holding the one side and like sliding it. And you just kind of set it down gently, that yeah. last like half inch, and you kind of like it. You drop it and it rocks. It's like pulling out like a Jenga square, you know. And you're just like, <laughs> oh, okay. It's pretty. It's that company, Victor, though. You know. It's pretty amazing. Like that, they have like the most iconic logo is that like that V with that's the mouse head, and yeah. it's good. It's classic shit. <laughs> that's an older company, maybe made. Yeah, in America. it is made in USA. Have you written They're a blog in- about it? No, I should. Yeah, that's I should. tomorrow's. I should go to their factory. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be fun. I we had these little uh, little mini apples that were in our garage. Like they had fallen out of the the truck when we were unloading groceries or whatever. We just left them in there. And then one day, Lindsay tells me, she says, oh, like, there's, it's so cute. There's these little bites out of some of the apples, like little mini, little mini bites out of some of the little mini apples. And I was like, okay, what, what do you think's little mini biting them? And I go and look, I'm like, that looks like little mini mouse or rat bites. Like, is that still cute? And she's like, (laughs) no, that's not very cute. So we get, we throw away the apples. A day or two later, I have a big truck that i don't drive super regularly it's in one side of the garage and i'm looking at the truck from the front and only because the garage door is open would be the only way i would ever be able to see it and notice i notice that there's some apples that are actually underneath like cored and chewed that are directly underneath the engine and i'm just like oh crap i know immediately like 
yes, these are rats and they're in the engine. I'm like, dude, these rats have built a nest or at least doing something like in the engine block of the truck. Open up the engine, look in there. Sure enough, there's a massive like rat nest in there. You know, it looks like a bird nest, but they've brought in like some of the kids socks in there. They've got like dog poops they've brought in there. Oh my God. There's like whole half chewed mini apples that are in there. And it's a nice combo. Rat shit all over the engine, everything else. I put on gloves. I clean out all the crap, like all the literal crap in the nest throw it away, shut the thing. I'm like, fire up the truck, fire up the truck. I drive it like out in the driveway. It starts at least, which is nice. It seems to be running. Okay. Which is great. And I look back at where it was parked in the garage. And now I notice that there's a couple little like tiny wires and stuff that are on the ground that are partially chewed. Like that's not good. So I'm like, I need to drive this around the block just to make sure this is still going because surely the rats didn't just remove some wiring that is unnecessary for the car (laughs) i drive it around a little bit it's not driving well like it's not like shifting properly it's just a mess whenever whenever there's a potential problem with the car always drive it yeah figure figure out that's maybe if i just drive it enough it'll repair itself (laughs) it'll regenerate yeah yeah, so I, I go inside. I'm like, hey, Lindsay, I need to drive this to the dealership. Like, I don't want to have to have it towed and go through that whole bit. I'm going to try and drive it there. Can you follow me? And then if something goes wrong, you'll be my ride. If not, we'll get there and you can just drive me home. She's like, sure. We're driving. It won't shift past like second gear or something. So I'm kind of, I, I won't really drive it above 30 miles an hour because it's not running well. And we get it maybe two miles away from my house. And I get an f- incoming phone call on, the, on you know, the car screen, and it's Lindsay. It's my wife. I answer it. I'm like, hey, what's up? And she's like laughing. She's like, you will not believe what's happening right now. You have rats jumping out of your, like jumping no, off my- of your truck. Like they, it has literally gotten so hot in the engine compartment oh that they are now abandoning ship. She's like, I think I just ac- like accidentally ran one over. As we were driving, <laughs> it's full on like abandoned ship in front of you. You got rats jumping off your truck. So I get up to the dealership, and the story is they ask, they're like, "Wait, what's going on? Why are you here?" I'm like, "Yeah, we have rats. I think they've messed some stuff up. The truck's not running well." They, do you think they're still in there? And I'm, I got to tell the guy, like, "No, I think they all jumped out on the, on the drive over." <laughs> <laughs> I think they all abandoned ship. So the other day, actually, it was about two weeks ago. Christy, my wife, she's. We have this basket of fruit, and it kind of hangs like in the middle of nowhere in our kitchen, so it's not really accessible, and there's an avocado on top, and there's this big chunk out, and she's like, oh, I think the fruit, I think we have fruit flies again. I'm like, babe, those are not fruit, <laughs> that's one big fruit fly. So I'm like, I think we have a rat. So oh, no. I set up a rat trap, and um, in the middle of the night, we hear this whack in our kitchen. And she wakes up, she grabs my leg. I'm like, babe, just relax. This thing's screaming and you can hear the trap just whacking against the ground. Like (laughs) whack, whack, whack. So I get up, I walk in there and then I see that the trap is actually hanging out of a small space between the dishwasher and, and one of our kitchen cabinets. And so it was trying to hide and like bury itself, but it couldn't get all the way through the hole because the trap was, was on its foot. At this point I have like boxers on and like some some like yard gloves <laughs> i have like these big leather gloves that i use when i like like move like agaves around so they don't like 
poke me. Agave gloves. And it's like it's like four almond trees. It's like four in the morning. When I'm harvesting almonds, <laughs> I wear these gloves. Harvesting my agave. So I had opened up this French door as wide as I could open it, and I was just thinking, I'm just going to grab the back of this trap and just chuck this thing out the door. And as soon as I tug on it, this thing is just like pinned on the inside of this cabinet in the dishwasher and it's just like i'm like holy shit this sucks because i don't want to pull so hard that it pulls its foot off and now it's stuck behind my dishwasher in the middle of all this a tiny little mini rat runs across my feet and is now hiding (laughs) underneath my refrigerator so I go out into my yard, I grab these like two by fours and I kind of create this little like, <laughs> what time is this at? What's this, this is like, scene? this is, this, this is, is like exactly what Michael said about right. buying the traps. So I try to shoo this, 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 Mark's like, this I, baby I have my rat, rat my rat annihilator set up, uh, that I fashioned from used four by fours that I found at the construction site across <laughs> the street. I go out and build a rat annihilator. At- <laughs> I try to, I, I got a broom going. I try to get this little baby rat out from the fridge and force him out the door, but he's too smart for me. And he goes underneath our sink and like disappears, which I later, later found was the hole that goes underneath our house. So I still got the big rat. And I finally, after an hour of contemplating what to do, I find, yeah, I mean, ripping on the inside. What'd I you finally do? You pull it. Him. And I throw it outside and I managed to pin it down with the broom. And at this point, I'm like, now what am I going to do? <laughs> And so I'm like yelling at my wife. I'm like, get me, get me a shovel or get me a this. And, and long story short, the little rat freed himself and, and ran off. So it was somewhat humane, but yeah. Were you worried about killing not, him? Not, ran back in the house. No, I wanted to kill him. Dave like cooked his rats <laughs> in his engine and this is why they, they I, got cooked and then they fell out and they got run over by your wife. That's take how, that. That's, Tell that's your friends. Justice. Tell your friends. That's what happens when you, how, when you nest, when you home, when you nest in my truck. Do you want yeah. to talk about your other car? Like You drive an AMG though, right? I do. A C63 AMG? A C63S. A C63S. Yeah, the AMG is, is it's kind of an everything car. Like It's super comfortable, but also ridiculously fast. Like, overpowered but not out of control have you like done have you gone to like stuttgart or to like germany and driven amg on the autobahn i've done some different things in germany um both with german like both with with uh like track stuff and then with amg we've also done like an ice driving experience up in the arctic circle like in sweden cool where we've Kind of word basic, like they call Mark it, was like, there. Yeah, Mark they call it, it drifting and ice driving, but it's that's like a fun way of saying sliding really awesome, expensive cars into snowbanks. <laughs> <laughs> which is that just terrifying. Which is basically, what we're doing. It was so fun. It's kind of scary at first, and then it's. I mean, it's scary because I'm thinking like, are they going to be pissed if I lose control of this and slide it off the track into the snowbank? And then they tell you like. If you don't do that a couple times, then you're not doing it right. Well, one, you're on a frozen lake and you're driving like a car. So that's how do they that's hand- a little like, like how, how do they handle on a frozen lake? The the whole point like better is than you think. Yeah, they, they handle great. But and you turn off your traction control, the ESP, all that kind of stuff. So that the whole point is for you to get them drifting. Um, and when you drive with the professional drivers, like we were in some turns, like these long turns, where if you imagine as sitting in a driving 
you know, the, the seat that you're driving in, your normal way you view is straight ahead. And then maybe you look to the sides of the front wind, windshield as far as direction on how you're driving. These guys would sit in a slide, like a controlled slide, for such a long time that they would be driving, looking out the side window, as because that was the direction you're going, and talking to me, sitting next to them, looking out that <laughs> the little mini side window and steering sideways as you're in a slide for maybe like 20 seconds straight. And so calm and casual, like, as they're doing that, it. I have a video of it where stuff is going by in the wrong direction for the windshield, you can see like the landscape and the trees and whatever in the background going sideways as you're whipping across these things. And I'm in and the they back do it. seat trying to film this thing, just <laughs> turning green, like, just like. <laughs> it's a lot different experience if you're, oh, if you're driving it than if you're just like yeah. a passenger too. That's uh, cool. Wait, can we talk about idea of other things? Sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No. Can we talk about golf courses for a second? Yes. I mean. So I'm like, I'm really interested in like, I'm not like the most advanced person, but I'm interested in golf course architecture. And it's interesting, like when you, it's like Brendan, I saw you out at Riviera during the Genesis Open and Dave and Mark, you guys were there. Um, And everyone's saying like, you know, Riviera is like one of the best, you know, venues, courses on tour. And when you look at like it's and this isn't like a judgment on like where the tour is playing, because there's obviously like a lot of other things that go into selecting a venue like parking and just so much logistics that goes into like a golf tournament. But like are there courses that you love that you stop at on tour or are there places like what's the one course beyond like Augusta or Cyprus or the old course that you love and why do you love it? Or um, for me, it's wherever I've played the best, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. my business. So I have fond memories of like places I've played well, but are there certain courses that you traditionally play well at? Like, do you know, like when there's a course? Absolutely. What is it? Uh, It's usually really good driving courses. That's normally some place that you have to hit a lot of drivers or driver gives you a lot of advantage, but not necessarily like a place that's so narrow that, if you hit it a little bit off the fairway, it's the same as if you hit it 30 or 40 yards off the fairway. I like some place that's kind of medium wide for the fairways and then a lot of trouble around it. So if you hit 30 or 40 yards offline, you're totally screwed. But if you hit it 15 yards offline, you're totally fine. Mm -hmm. That's usually something that's good for me, which is like a San Antonio, TPC San Antonio, or maybe maybe more like a, a TPC... Uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other beast though, right? Yeah, Just that's totally different that. because of all the madness that's going on. But um, And then I've played well in Napa the last couple of years. That's, that place has been really good to me, which is a little bit different. It's, it's a little bit shorter course and a little bit more um, maybe trickier around the greens and stuff. But I always say Riviera is the best course we play on tour. Um, the only thing that Riviera has going against it is that with the size of the field that we have, the greens get really bumpy because they get them super fast and they're a little soft on top and they get, they get really uncomfortable, like even more uncomfortable than Pebble Beach and Torrey Pines and all these things that have the same surface. Uncomfortable, Like uncomfortable to approach? Well, if you have, if you have a three footer, on a green that's bumpy and also fast, 
you're very defensive and if you miss it, you still have to make the same putt the next time. Mm-hmm. You know, at least at like Torrey Pines or Pebble Beach, they have a similar surface and it gets bumpy. But if you miss a three footer, you can tap in and move on with your life, right? At Riviera, it's like miss the three footer, it spun out. Now I have four feet. Miss that one. Now I have four feet again. You know, now I have three feet, and you so can just be there all day. Of, what type of player does well with that? It's just like you never know. Almost fell off my chair. <laughs> uh, do you need an Excedrin? I do. Brought to you by Excedrin. Brought to you by... Have you hurt yourself? I have. Injured. It, Riviera, that being said, is a is a big ball strikers course. Like Bubba's won there a few times. And he's obviously putted well when he's done that. But Bubba plays a lot of different shots and, and is a great ball striker. And so... And that's why Bubba does well at Augusta as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure, because you can shape shots. you you got to move a lot of shots at Augusta right to left, which for him is a fade, which is an advantage because he can kind of hit it high and far. When you have to hit a draw high and far, there's only a few guys in the world that can do that, like Rory. Rory probably hits the highest, longest draw on tour. If you're Phil and, and Bubba, those guys can hit a big, high, hard fade, and it stays in the air longer. It covers the corner on 13. It, like, it just kind of sets up really nice but riviera is probably the best course we play but my favorite places to play are the places i play well so Mm -hmm. napa san antonio phoenix um boston always pops into my head a lot of the tpc courses because they're just they're a little bit more modern as far as like the setup Mm -hmm. they're longer they have wider fairways i normally like that kind of style for me just for me to go play well Mm mm-hmm but my favorite places are like Riviera, and then I, I go always go back to Turnberry, uh, which is a place I played when I was 16, but I have fond memories of it. It was my first place that I played outside the U.S. My dad took me there, and I was just blown away by it. Cool. What a treat. Yeah. So how about you? Like, what have you played that you really enjoy? Um, it's cool. I, I'm interested in, like, I never play well in, like, the older, like, Donald Ross, like, Seth Rayner um tilling has like i generally like don't do well in the sort of parkland style golf course but i love it mm-hmm. um like i beth page black is really hard but fun um i like like all those hard fun courses but I'm, I'm more interested like in the old courses with like a lot of quirky holes and it's like every hole is different and there's like a lot of different variety like to me like that's that's the most interesting golf a lot of the reason that those are hard, too, is that they were designed when you couldn't get the green speeds the way they can get them now. So, like, we run into that all the time on tour where they usually at majors, you'll play a course that was built in the 20s or 30s or something like that. And the greens were meant to roll at seven on the stint meter, which is slow, mm-hmm. extremely slow for now. And then we go out there for a U.S. Open and they're like, OK, we're going to run the greens at 14 this week. You're like, well, that's twice as fast as they maybe should be or, mm-hmm. you know, at least like way faster than they were expected to ever be played. So it gets a little out of control and that makes it a lot harder for the average guy to play. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of challenging golf courses, but challenging that are fair. The newer approach tends to be like a tricked up version of difficult. Like Even if you, to your point, like even if the, the way is going to be, we're going to get these greens so ridiculous that they're borderline all like illegal pins 
If I designed a golf course, and I wanted it to be the hardest golf course ever. If I want to design the hardest par four ever, if I, I'll just make it 800 yards. But that doesn't mean that's like better. Yeah. But that's almost like the approach, right? Like, but 10 at Riviera as a par four is a hard par four. And it's, it's what, 280? Like if you played as a member, I don't know what you guys played at, but yeah, I mean, two ninety maybe. Yeah, it's it's two hundred ninety yards, two seventy to the front, two seventy five. And you can you can make birdie there, but especially for AMs, the amateurs there, like you can make a six or a seven. I don't know how the AMs ever play there. I think there's probably the way that it's set up for the tournament. If the AMs tried to play it, like in the pro am and stuff, nobody's even finishing the hole. That's brutal. Lastly, because we are going to have to wrap this up, but controversial controversy aside. If you don't feel comfortable, then don't answer it. But <laughs> being a golf guy, being a fashion blogger guy of sorts, worst style on tour. Mm. You know, I think it's hard because it's not necessarily like everyone's choice. Like that's sort of like the asterisk to all this. It's like sure. a lot of these guys like are, you know, it's like a you have a sponsor or whatever. And I, I don't think like a lot of them want to, dedicate like enough like mental thought to like what they're wearing where it's like so many other things to worry about i think it's hard though you know the nike guys like look look clean i think jason day like looks really clean his look is like probably it's pretty sporty but nike's good about like having one logo and everything be like pretty cohesive and they put thought into it it seems like what all their athletes are wearing like per tournament but when you see him like you know I think like when the weather's a little cooler, it's like a little bit more telling. And when you look at the Open Championship, because there's weather, everyone's like got a sweater on. It's like a little more layered. It ends up like looking a little bit better, mm-hmm. you know. And then there's other guys like Jimmy Walker and Phil who just like try to wear black and like that's their thing. And Ricky's got his own thing. And golf's like an interesting thing because you need a little bit of tech in the clothes, but you don't need too much. And it's kind of like a sporty thing, but it's kind of not i think like there's a lot of things that like the bladed collar which is like clearly you know like a brand's doing that to make it a look so they can own it you know it's like it's good marketing it makes sense like why it's happening nike has a very specific look and type of guy that like a type of player body type i don't think anyone thinks about this but when you look at brooks kapka like brooks he like has the Nike look like they want a clean cut guy, you know, like Jason has it too. Like Tom, like Patrick Reed, I feel like is like a little bit outside of it. So it's like a, it's a harder thing to make work with like what they're overall trying to do. I think Justin Thomas, I like, could look really good if like Polo, you know, like if he was wearing like a better combo or like more normal things, like sometimes I see him like wearing I'd say he wears the best belts on tour, you know, because he wears like alligator belts and like leather normal belts that like you're like, yeah, that looks normal, you know. <laughs> nice belt. You wear Dunning. Dunning's nice stuff. He makes like what I actually like know Ralph Dunning, gotten to gotten to know him through the years, have no like relationship with them. But, I, I, you know, I really like what they do. I think like the fabric's super nice and like that. I wear a lot of that stuff. It's like almost like normal clothes that you can wear playing golf, which is kind of what you need. Um, so I think it's like you have a you have like one of the best. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that they've they've done a really nice blend of like traditional but with modern 
touches and modern fabrics and I'm never going to be a super flashy guy. Like I'm not going to dress like Ricky or like the guys who wear Puma and stuff and they get all really loud with stuff. But I'm going to have a little bit of style and some nice fabrics and some cool cuts. And, you know, for me, it's been great. Brennan, did you have that early on in your career at that point where you just like wearing whatever you had, whatever it was semi clean? So in those days, I was actually wearing uh, a company called Beyond the Links, which is Joe Scovran's or was Joe Scovran's company, who is Ricky Fowler's caddy. So he started a company and they had some shirts and stuff. And even my first win on tour in 2011, I was wearing those shirts with just like pants. I think I bought it like Express, (laughs) you know, so it just it's it's been a mix. And then from there, I went to Oakley for a couple of years and then I've been with Dunning for the last like four years, I think. But But because of golf, it's almost forced you to pay attention to like what you wear and styles and fits and things like that. Yeah, for sure. And, and more and more. So I've become conscious of like what I'm wearing and what I'm comfortable in. And, um, my wife's a big kind of like proponent of what I'm wearing. Like I'm, as long as she thinks that I look okay, then I'm happy with it. Cause she's super into fashion and, you know, reads Vogue, like it's the Bible and you know, everything. And as long as she thinks that it's, so she's like Dave, she's like Dave, yeah. you know, hence the fishnet shirts and the, yeah, the chaps on the pants and all of your <laughs> more, chaps. I think when modern looks that you've been putting together, Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. I feel like we could we could talk a lot more clothing and golf course and rat stories. Um, <laughs> I'd, we'd love to have you back to do that, if you will, if you would be so kind. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks you for came me. here as a guest. You're leaving as a member. For people wanting to follow both you and a continue and a continuous lean, where can they find uh, you on socials and that kind of stuff? It's all just a continuous lean at a continuous lean. It's all under that same thing. Instagram, and whatever they follow, they're going to be mightily disappointed. So you know. That's this whole the whole thing we do with this podcast is set people up to be really bummed out, disappointed. That's if they've our, made it this yeah. far in the podcast, listen yeah. to me talk, and this far they're going to be really disappointed it's, when they get to my social. They're a glutton for punishment, <laughs> and they've earned it. We want to give them that yeah, much more thanks. punishment. So it's a continuous lean Instagram, Twitter, uh, the website, yeah. also yep. the blog. Um, lastly, any final words, final thoughts? It's nice to sit with you guys, and um, the one thing I really like about golf, it brings people together in a way that when you find out, say your wife's like, we're going to go have dinner with Scott and Amy tonight, and you're like, who are these people? And then you get to dinner, and you're like, Scott's an avid golfer, and you're like, it's almost like a relief that you you, you, you instantly have that connection, and it's nice to like have gotten to know you guys through the game and to, you know, form that connection through... Something, you know, that you do for Brandon, you do for, you know, work and for your life. And then for us is, is just a a leisure activity. But the thing I really love about it is like, you get to meet really great people and it's like this great connector of things. And for that, like, I'm grateful to sit here at the table with you guys and put my terrible golf skills on exhibit occasionally. And for us, you can follow us, uh, online. We are member-guest.com. And Instagram, we are member guest official. Twitter, we are at member guest. Uh, keep in touch with what we're doing, all of our upcoming stuff there. Anything else? Mark B? I think that's it. Yeah. All right. So, in closing, may your drive, drive fly, fly straight, straight 
and guitars guitar, stay, stay tuned. tuned now and forever. Adios. Adios. Thanks, Michael. Thank you guys. Talk about.